This is Jay Baer from Convince and Convert. Welcome to Season 6 of Social Pros. If you want to learn how big companies succeed with social media, you found the perfect podcast. The show is brought to you by Salesforce Marketing Cloud, inspiring one-to-one connections with your customers through social, mobile, email, web, and advertising. The show is also brought to you by Yext, whose award-winning location management platform helps companies of all sizes drive more foot traffic to their doors and get more customer reviews. And by Convince and Convert, social media strategy advisors and counselors to the world's most interesting brands. Convince and Convert makes your social better. My co-host for the show is Adam Brown. Find all links, archives, and more at socialpros.com. Are you ready? Let's get to work. Hey, welcome, everybody. This is Social Pros. I am Jay Bear, founder of Convince and Convert, joined, as always, by my man from Austin, Texas, the executive strategist for Salesforce Marketing Cloud, Mr. Adam Brown. Adam, how's it going? Jay, it's going great. Uh, fantastic. As we kind of turn the, the turn the switch on the post 300 episodes now. Yeah, it's crazy. 300 episodes. It was so fun to have all of our previous guests come back for a big reunion show, several different live video shows over the last uh, few days. It's, it's been really gratifying and lots of people saying nice words about the show. In fact, our fan of the week, uh, our listener of the week uh, here on Social Pros for this week is Pippa Rogers. Pippa was saying lots of nice things about the show on Twitter recently. Thank you, Pippa, for being a listener. We appreciate it. Have another great guest this week on the show. Heather Whaling is a longtime uh, friend of mine. She and I have been running around in the same circles in social media for years. She is the founder of Gebin Communications, which is a terrific integrated communications firm uh, based in Columbus, Ohio, doing a lot of great work for interesting clients, a lot of social media. And she's just a really smart person. I really enjoyed our conversation with her. I really did too, Jay. Heather is is brilliant uh, in, in what she's doing with, uh, with the agency that she founded. I think I was most impressed with with uh, the, the the character at which she's she's creating there with her uh, her house rules for her agency and uh, the progressiveness of the work that they're doing. You know, Jay, you know this as well as I do. The world of PR is changing at such a dramatic rate that even the PR agency of two or three years ago is no longer that. And I think that's one of the things I really learned from Heather and how she's allocating her team, how she's looking for new team members with different skill sets. It's, uh, it's, it's really refreshing, whether you're in public relations or, uh, or just a social pro in general. People who are in PR professionally, many of them know Heather and they know her name and they know her reputation because she really is the embodiment of the modern public relations practitioner. She really, really gets it. And you'll understand that uh, after you hear our interview with Heather Whaling in this episode of Social Pros. Before we jump into that, I want to remind you that the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Marketing Cloud, who have a fantastic ebook I'd like you to download. I think you should do it. Go to bit.ly slash social business guide. That's bit.ly slash social business guide. That's all lowercase. The Business Leader's Guide to Becoming a Social Business tells you how to assess your current social media team. You got the right people. They're doing the right things. Shows you how to track missed opportunities. Shows you how to position social for real success inside your enterprise and shows you how to best analyze the results of social. It's a great book. It's free. It's from Adam and his team at Salesforce Marketing Cloud. That's bit.ly slash social business guide, all lowercase. And of course, the show is also brought to you by my team and I at Convince and Convert Consulting, where we help the most interesting brands in the world level up their social media content marketing, email marketing, and digital at large. If we can help you get better, come see us at convinceandconvert.com. Now, please enjoy this episode of Social Pros featuring Heather Whaling from Gebin Communications. 
Heather, welcome to Social Pros. Thanks so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got here. All right. So I am founder and president of Gabin Communication. We are a communications agency based in Columbus, Ohio, with an office in Chicago. We specialize in traditional and digital PR. So media relations, social media, content marketing, um, all those types of communication activities. Our team is about 22 people. So I had worked for other people's agencies for like nine years and then went out on my own and started my own thing. When we began, probably about half of our clients were in the startup and tech space. So I've always had this deep interest in technology and emerging trends. So we talk about ourselves here as technologists. So we apply a level of technology or a layer of technology to all of our communication. Um, clients are everything from startups and emerging brands all the way up to Fortune 100 retailers. So it really runs the gamut. How many years have you been doing Gabin? We've been friends for a long time, but I don't remember what year you started. So I started in December of 2009. So we're like eight years old now. Yeah. So that wasn't too long after we started Convince and Convert, maybe a year after. You have seen a tremendous amount of change in in what people expect from a firm like yours and, and the tools that you use to execute work on behalf of your clients. What's been the hardest part about that transformation? So, you know, every day it seems like there's a new piece of technology or a new platform that you should be checking out. So I think the hard part is not getting sidetracked and making sure you're staying focused on the ones that will actually deliver the value for your clients and not just the ones that people are, you know, happen to be buzzing about at the moment. (laughs) Would you say you're doing more social media for clients now or less? So our, from a revenue standpoint, I think we're actually split 50-50. It's exactly half of our business. And is that actually uh, sort of running people's social media accounts and saying, okay, we're going to post to your Facebook page, we're going to run your Instagram, your Twitter, et cetera? Yep. We do um, a, a, a fair amount of community management. So that piece of it where we are actually their person online. Um, and then we've also got some clients where we'll do like the social strategy and we'll provide some creative campaign ideas, but they're actually running with the day-to-day execution. So it really just kind of depends. One of the things that that we have talked about on this show a lot, Adam and I, is this notion that so much of content now in social has become video. Even Facebook, as you know, a few weeks ago have said, hey, if you're going to make some content, might as well make it video because we like it better. You see videos more and more on Instagram now, Twitter as well. LinkedIn now has video and you see more and more content um, showing up in, in video on LinkedIn also. Has that required you to change the kind of people that you have in the firm or, or your workflow or your processes, you know, as a public relations professional, and I have been as well, that's how I got started. You you sort of come at it from a writing standpoint, typically, right? That's kind of the history of that as a communications and, 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 you know, who can stitch together great paragraphs. And now it's who can frame a shot. And that seems to be a pretty big shift. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. So my career actually began, my very first agency that I worked with was a public affairs agency. And I worked in political campaigns and did a lot of campaign management. And so I was always shaped by not so much how many paragraphs do we write, but how do we get people to go to the poll on election day? And there's no deadline or no um, stamp of approval or not quite like election day. So I think that for us, it's always helped fuel how I view measurement and tactics. It doesn't matter how many media placements you get if you can't get people to actually go to the poll and vote for your candidate. So Um, It also forced me to think outside the media relations box that I think a lot of PR people get 
forced into. So this kind of evolution of PR and evolution of social media into video or into other pieces of technology is, is a fairly natural extension, I think, of that for me. In terms of how we approach that in our agency, I'm also a big believer in know what you do well and do that really, really well. So I do not actually know how to always frame the best shot, but I know how to go find the best videographer who will tell us how to do that. And so we'll bring them in as partners. So a lot of times I think agencies get in trouble because they try to be a little bit of everything to everyone. And instead of doing really, really great work, they end up doing lackluster work because they're spread too thin. I don't ever want to be that kind of agency. I don't ever want Gavin to be that agency. So instead we're real focused on, we know what we do and we'll partner with other people if we need to. So our clients are getting the best of the best. How are you handling paid social? It's such a big part of content amplification now, it seems. And, and certainly brands on Facebook, it almost becomes a, a required circumstance. Obviously, uh, Adam and the folks at Salesforce Marketing Cloud have have lots of tools and opportunities to help people both with organic and their, and their paid. But are you doing paid social for clients in-house or is that an area where you're partnering with, with other people? No, that we do have in-house. So we have a paid social specialist. So that was one of those pieces that it became almost impossible for us to really do social well without being able to provide the paid recommendations alongside it. So we have a paid specialist, a paid social specialist. Um, so we're managing a lot of clients paid social. Um, it's always fun for us when we can send out, you know, here's our monthly recap report of how things did. And we can show that we're driving more revenue than what they're paying us in their monthly retainer. So paid social is something we've gotten really good at from a revenue standpoint, especially. Um, but it is definitely a skill set and an expertise that is, is niche. It's not something that I can have every single one of my community managers um, really providing recommendations to clients all the time on. We've got a person who's a specialist and that's their job is to really, really go deep in understanding all the different ways on the different platforms that it works and how we can leverage it for clients. You mentioned sort of the changing nature of, of public relations and how some public relations firms have gotten boxed into just doing media relations, which is part of the services, but but not all the services in, in theory. Um, and, and then other firms like yours have been very facile at, at, at changing their scope of services and saying, well, we can also do this and this and this and this. For, for those that have not done as good a job making that shift for, for public relations firms that are still sort of have a relatively narrow offline scope of services, do you think that is a, a lack of vision, sort of a philosophical problem, or is it an operational problem? <laughs> it's probably a little bit of both. So I, there are some agencies where they're, they're fine. They want to stay small and they want to have a niche and that's all they want to do. And that's okay. But I think if you're an agency that wants to have a growth mindset, you can't have such tunnel vision or have such a siloed approach to what you're doing. So I think that's probably a vision piece of it. But to then execute on that vision, you have to change operationally. You have to hire a different type of person. Um, you have to incorporate things within your agency. So we have, uh, we call it Geb and Grows, but each Wednesday we have a team meeting and those meetings have a different focus or a different theme. And once a month, it's a technologist meeting. And so we have a little group of people internally, almost like a little technologist committee. And it's their job to figure out what is going on, what are the different trends and platforms and what happened at CES or what's going to happen at South by or whatever that um, our team needs to be aware of. And then we're doing ongoing 
professional development and training with our whole team, whether it's our media relations specialist or our office manager or our paid social specialist, we're getting everybody up to speed and aware of technology and how trends in technology are changing the way people are communicating and changing the way business gets done. But that is an operational thing that if you're a a traditional, traditional old school PR agency is going to be a big shift for you. Yeah, it, it's a big sandwich to eat all at once. And, and so, you know, it's it, the better approach, in my estimation, and we've worked with a lot of agencies at Convince and Convert to help them make this transition is is it's one bite at a time, right? It's a month at a time, it's a quarter at a time, it's a year at a time. Uh, you can't just flip the switch and wake up and say, okay, today we're all digital. It just doesn't really work like that. Last question for me in this segment, uh, and then Adam's going to jump in here. I, I did some work with with. Uh, a couple of companies recently. And one of the theses of this research was that influencers are starting to act more like journalists and journalists are starting to act more like influencers. Do you, do you believe that's true? And, and is it important in your line of work and really for all people who are social pros to be thinking of media, quote unquote, the press as one pool of people and online influencers, quote unquote, as a different pool of people? Or, or is that a difference that no longer is worthy of making a distinction? I think it depends on the type of campaign that you're doing and the type of media that you're talking about. I think at a national level, the national media still has their editorial standards. They want to they want to come off as being seen as impartial and not being bought and paid for. So if you're working with a reporter at the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, that relationship is very different than if you're working with your local influencer or an influencer in a vertical or a niche market. Um, The trade media is a little bit different, I think. And in some cases, those people are really straddling that line between influencer and media. Um, so it, it really gets, yeah, I think you have to get really granular and, and understand who the person is that you're working with and how do they approach their work? What is the mindset that they are bringing to the table? And if you can understand the mindset that they are bringing to the table, then you can figure out how to best work with them. And Heather, it's, it's, uh, it's great that, uh, Jay asked that question because that is so similar to the first question that I wanted to, uh, to ask you, you know, I think when, um, when, when Jay and I, I spent eight years um, in, in, a, in a large PR agency, I know Jay spent some time, you know, this industry has changed so much. And uh, when I was in the industry, there was a lot of focus, certainly on, as you said, the traditional journalist. We had begun to see kind of the increase of the value of the influencer, an influencer that perhaps may not be a journalist. And then, as you said, the subset of journalist trade versus consumer and things like that. I'm curious how important the traditional journalist is to the work that you're doing at Gebbin Communications and just the industry of PR today. How are you kind of slicing your, your actions on focusing on traditional journalism or those influencers, or actually now, you know, in in many cases, going directly to your target audience with your communications and marketing and social activities. So my, um, the agency that I was at before I started this company, I had a boss who talked about the thud factor. And this was still like when old school, you were printing out your media clips and putting them like in a three ring binder. And there was, there was always this pressure around, you need to be able to walk into a client meeting, put the binder on the table and have the thud factor. And that was sort of the measure of success. Like how many media placements did you get? Cheers. 
yes, uh, ad equivalency. It's like horrible. <laughs> so thankfully, we have hopefully all, almost all of us at least, evolved beyond that. But I do think that traditional journalists still play a huge role in communication, particularly um, in the business. You know, if you're trying to raise your profile from a business standpoint, if you're a startup trying to get funding, if you're trying to break into a new market, the media is still really, really relevant. Um, what has changed, I think, is how we're measuring the effectiveness of those media placements. So it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Is it driving traffic to the website? Is that website then, you know, is that website traffic? What is the customer journey on the website? Is it, Are they clicking on the contact us page? Are they downloading the white paper? What does that conversion look like? So we'll work with clients to understand, let's look at all the media placements that we got. What happened from those media placements? Where were the ones that were creating the most conversions happening? Was it in national? Was it in trade? Was it in print? Was it in online? And if we can understand what the profile is of the media that is best converting, then we know, okay, let's double down on that. Let's go get more of that type of media placement. So media relations is still really, really important, but I think you have to let the data guide you so that you're not just spraying and praying, but actually generating high quality media placements that will move the needle on the business goal specifically. You mentioned that 50% of your revenues at, uh, at Gebbin Communications are coming from social versus kind of more of the traditional PR types of activities. I'm curious of that social piece, you know, how important the paid social activities are. Because you know, I think we've begun to see in the industry so much of a you know a media mix is is going to those paid social, and sometimes it's coming from the public relations agency or the communications agency assisting, and oftentimes that's coming from the media my buying agency, you know, like the uh, you know the large conglomerates uh, that are typically run by the advertising agencies or just the advertising agencies themselves. How important is paid social, Heather, to public relations right now? And as you look at a, a program or a campaign, how are you kind of going through and saying, okay, we're going to spend this amount of our budget on actually execution of more kind of organic or viral types of activities, and we're going to spend this amount of action on actually paid social, so media buys. You know, if you go back and look in the world of PR, you know, that would have been blasphemy 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm curious kind of how that's evolved and now become an integral part of, of your uh, of your offering. It's funny. I, I call us a PR agency. We are. But every time I say that we're a PR agency, I sort of like grimace as I'm saying it because I also realize it's limiting. It's We're more than a PR agency because we're working on, especially on our paid social campaigns, we're functioning much more like advertisers or marketers in the more traditional sense. So focused on paid social to generate leads, paid social to generate revenue. And those are things that even now most PR agencies are not really talking about in like a meaningful way, but that's how we're judged. We have revenue goals every month that we have to hit. And that's not a traditional PR activity at all. Um, I don't know the exact breakdown from the social side of how much is, you know, of, of our work is focused on paid versus organic. A lot of it ends up merging together. We've got some clients where we're managing their paid and their organic. We've got other clients where we're managing just their organic, but they have either in-house or another agency doing their paid. So I, other than like a, a small nonprofit that we're working with, I don't think there are any clients that we're working on where we are leading their organic, where there isn't also paid alongside it in some form or fashion. You mentioned that in your background, you came from uh, from more quote unquote, and I'm using the PR term here, you know, precisely in, in, in doing public policy and, and public affairs types of activities. I'm curious your perception, Heather, on how brands today 
are using social for public policy and issues and crisis communications, you know, oftentimes considered kind of those those areas of, of traditional PR, again, in quote marks, you know, with, 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 without fail. Are brands doing a better job of, of issues and crisis communications with, with PR or is that still a big growth area? Um, I think it's a little bit of a crapshoot. I think there are some brands that are doing well with it. I think there are other brands that... Um, have not taken the time to update their crisis plan. So they've got their crisis plan that lives in the corporate PR department, and it's a very corporate PR-driven crisis plan, and they haven't updated it with the social scenarios. Um, And so then they get caught off guard and aren't quite sure how to respond. Um, We have a client that we worked with. We did a crisis plan for them, and and it was sort of divided up into four levels of crisis or issues management. And so at the most basic level, some stuff can just be managed by the community manager. It could just be a you know quick response it doesn't need to get escalated but i think un- it goes both ways the person who's doing the community management also needs to understand how to spot a potential crisis and when to alert the corporate communications or the crisis team and then on the flip side the communications team needs to understand how to leverage social media to help mitigate some of those situations. So I actually think there's room to grow on the social side and the PR side. As your team, and you said you have a, a team of, of over 22 people there at, uh, at Gibbon Communications, as they begin to craft the, again, more traditional types of communications activities, whether they're writing a speech for an executive or bullet points or a media plan or, uh, or a white paper or, or something like that, even especially kind of in, in technology with white papers. Are they changing the way that they're writing this content, knowing that it's going to be extracted and distilled and communicated and discussed in social media? You know, I think we saw a trend, you know, towards uh, speech writers, you know, when we began to see the 24-hour news cycle and, and writing speeches that made sure they had lots and lots of sound bites. Are we seeing kind of the next evolution of, in this case, speech writing, where we're writing something that we know is going to be have to be even more snippetized for uh, for social digestion and and uh, discussion? Yeah, I think especially if you look at like the event space or event planning space, event production space, it's there has to be a big focus on what is the social moment coming out of this. Um, so whether you know, one of my favorite sound bites is the Dropbox when they launched Dropbox, their like little soundbite was sync is the new save. And so I think, you know, as you create that, you need that quick soundbite also so that people can resonate and that spreads. But then there's also what's the social moment. And that has to then also include a visual. So it's not just what are the words that are coming out of someone's mouth, but what is the visual experience that you're creating so people can get the content and post it on Instagram or Facebook or wherever they're posting their content. Um, It has to include a social component as well. It's amazing how all this is, is, is changing. Um, it, it truly is. I have one other interesting thing I, I saw um, on your on your website, and that was your house rules. And I thought it was really meaningful, and it, it really hit me. I'm lucky to uh, to work at, at Salesforce, you know, with a with a CEO and founder, Mark Benioff, that you know really I think uh, adheres to so many of your house rules. We don't necessarily call them that. You know, it's our Ohana culture here at Salesforce. But I was really, you know, surprised. And one of the things I I thought about when I read your house rules was uh, was something that just happened just last week at, at Davos. Uh, Mark Benioff, our founder, was at was at Davos, um, and he had asked a question of of a lot of the executives and politicians in the room, and it was you know this question: What is the most important to you? Is it trust or is it growth? Because if anything trumps trust, then you are in trouble. 
And I thought that was a really meaningful statement that he made and very consistent with how Mark approaches business. As I read your house rules, I kind of had the same type of feeling. And I would love for you to kind of explain the house rules and kind of which of them really are most meaningful to you. I'm sure they all are because you probably crafted them with, with help from your team. So our, the house rules are our version of mission, vision, value. So it's, it is the guiding philosophies that shape how we approach our work, how we approach personnel decisions, how we approach what partnerships we get involved in. So they're really the foundation of how we do what we do here at Gavin. They came out of... Um, things that we were informally saying anyway. And then as we continued to grow, I realized we needed to really formalize it a little bit. So um, the culture here at Gavin is something that's really, really important to me. And so as we continue to grow, I always say we'll keep growing as long as the essence of Gavin remains intact. And that essence of Gavin is really crystallized in the house rules. Um, it's, you know, they're fun things like no jerks allowed and bring on the crazy. Those are probably my two favorite ones. So bring on, um, it used to be bring on the crazy. Now we've evolved that into embrace the crazy. We found out in, in PR, it's sort of crazy all the time here. Um, and our clients, you know, we do a lot of work with startups. We do a lot of work with fast moving brands, especially in the social side. Um, so things are just crazy. And we always want to be that partner for our client who remains calm, cool, collected, who rises to the occasion instead of, and doesn't, you know, kind of crash under the pressure. So that embrace the crazy one is one of my favorites. No jerks allowed is a big one. So we're very choosy about the clients that we say yes to. We say no to probably at least a project or two a week because either the person's not a right fit, the product's not a right fit. We think they have a bad product and we just don't want to be involved with it. Um, but we want to do work that matters with people we like every day. So internally and externally, you know, we spend a lot of time here. We spend a lot of time together. So we should enjoy the people that we are spending our time with. Another one that is um, meaningful to me is this idea of doing well by doing good. So the name Geben in German means to give. When I was naming the company, I wanted something that related to me, but I didn't want it to be my name. So my family is German. I'm a big believer in the power of nonprofits in the community. And we do a lot of work here around that. So everybody in the company gets 30 hours of time. They can use pro bono to work on whatever they want to work on. We do quarterly service projects. Uh, we're on a number, you know, we've got people here who are on a number of boards and committees. And so um, that idea of, of giving back is important. I have a four and a half year old at home and I tell him all the time, if you have the ability to help, then you have a responsibility to help. Um, and that applies at home as well as here at the office. Related to that, another one that I love is partnering and connecting is our competitive edge. So we help facilitate a lot of connections and introductions and partnerships for clients, whether it's, you know, a for-profit wanting to get involved in a nonprofit, or if it's a, you know, a startup looking to get an introduction to a, an investor or to a bigger brand, we can help make a lot of those introductions for them. And we just do it as a way to be a good partner. I know there are some agencies that see networking as a service and it's something that they charge for. I'm not really a big believer in charging for introductions. I think, um, it's better just to make the, you know, don't hoard your Rolodex, I guess, make the connection, make the introduction. Um, and that'll come back, you know, it'll, it'll help you. But it, I think it's something that helps really differentiate us from other agencies that our clients are working with. Is this something that you created really at the onset of creating uh, Gibbon Communications? Have they evolved over the uh, years? So there's uh, 10 of them and they've been in place 
probably at least the last five years. The company is only eight years old. So I think they were th- like partnering and connecting and do well by doing good. Those were all things that we were saying informally to each other anyway. And so then it was a matter of like, let's put pen to paper and they're hanging in our office right when you walk in. So they're very official and front and center. So I didn't want to have mission vision values that, you know, you hear when you get onboarded and then are stuffed, you know, in a drawer somewhere that nobody ever looks at in a handbook. Um, I wanted them to be things that really were living and breathing and guiding how we work. And so we've had those 10 um, and they've they've not really evolved. Those are that is who we are and how we approach our work. I love that. And um, I think it says so much for 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 you as 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 a leader and, and creator of the organization and obviously for uh, for the team that you've assembled. To that point, I had one last question I wanted to ask before uh, handing it back over to uh, to Jay cuz it sounds like Gebbin Communications is one heck of a great place to work. And I'm curious, uh, as you bring in new employees and, and new uh, team members uh, to Gebbin, do you find yourself kind of today looking for people that have a more traditional PR background, perhaps they even majored in public relations at university? Or are you looking for people with different types of skill set? Jay and I both work with our alma maters, and I think the entire kind of PR industry right now is trying to kind of figure out kind of what does someone who majors in public relations kind of do with that uh, type of uh, diploma? Is going into an, an agency like yours, kind of the, the, a great place for that? Or are you looking for people, again, with a lot of different varieties of experiences? If I look at what our current staff makeup is now, most of them come out of a, you know, a PR program. They were a PR or communications major. We've got some who are marketing majors. Um, I think I have a couple like business majors maybe, but for the most part, it's still that PR piece. The interesting part though, is we have really honed in on, um, students who have been involved in PRSA, students who have been involved in maybe like the technology or the startup community at their college, um, kids who had more involvement, not just in their PR classes, but went and found that really interesting internship, or maybe they interned at a startup. So at the entry level piece, coming out of a PR program is not enough because most PR programs have not updated the curriculum to actually teach you what you're going to need to be successful in our environment. So we need to see that you've done more and gone above and beyond. As we look at more of our kind of seniorish level talent, so more, you know, people who are managing the accounts, that we've got some who have come out of a more traditional background. We just hired somebody who actually starts later this week and his background's completely different. Um, he comes more out of actually like kind of a finance and project management world. So that'll be a little bit of an experiment for us, but I think his skill set applies so perfectly to what we do that it should be a relatively easy transition. Um, we have one person who came out of academia, so she was a professor and she was an amazing writer and really creative. So I think there are definitely ways and openings for people who don't have that quote unquote traditional PR background to ease into or to kind of get themselves into the agency world. From a college standpoint, though, I really, really wish the colleges and universities would update their curriculum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you hope that's going to happen eventually, right? And, and I think it is happening. It just takes time. We do some work with higher ed and, you know, they they understand that this curriculum has to evolve, but but the curriculum process, it's not like what we do in, in business where you say, hey, let's just change our online course. We have a change by Thursday. There's just lots of processes that they have to go through that prevents them from doing it maybe as as quickly and responsiveness there as um, as we would like it to to occur. Heather, 
you have been involved personally in social media for a long time. I think that's maybe where we first met was maybe in the social medias. Uh, I, have, I have a couple questions for you. If you could only use one social network yourself and delete everything else from your phone, what would you use? I love Twitter. I'm still a big Twitter fan. It's my favorite. I could, you know, take or leave Facebook. Instagram is fun because I like photos, but I love Twitter. Spoken like a true public relations professional, I would say. (laughs) It's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So I want you to, I'm glad you mentioned that. I want you to explain your Twitter handle, uh, which is not Heather Whaley, not, you know, something that, that would, it's, it's, it's P-R-T-N-I, T-I-N-I, always has been. Uh, I want you to tell that story. Yeah. So I was working for an agency in Orlando around when social media got to be a thing. And so they said, you know, what is Facebook and Twitter and why are clients asking us about it? And apparently I was the geekiest person in the office because they gave me a lot of leeway and told me to go figure this out. And how do we talk about it at the agency? So as any naturally curious person would do, I started a blog and a Twitter account, but I had a hard time figuring out like, what should it be? Should it be my name? Should it be something else? So I went to happy hour as anyone would do. And on a napkin was like brainstorming out different ideas and came up with PR teeny and the Twitter handle was available and the URL was available. And so I grabbed it. Um, and then it kind of stuck <laughs> and I had thought about like, maybe I should change it to my actual name, but, um, it's kind of fun. It's something a little different. So I kept it. <laughs> it's nice and short. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to remember. But it's funny. Some people do have done that and then change back. Peter Shakeman, who was on our 300th episode anniversary show uh, recently, he was originally at Skydiver. Skydiver. That's right. That's like for a long, long time because that's his his vocation, right? He, he's, a, he's a he's a skydiving aficionado, uh, likes to throw himself out of aircraft. And so he was at Skydiver for years and years and years and then finally decided to change to, to at Peter Shankman just to avoid uh, confusion. But I, I am proud of you, Heather, for st- you know keeping it. Like, let's just go with it. Hey, thanks. <laughs> Make it happen. Uh, Adam, I know you wanted to ask a question uh, about uh, setting up new client accounts. I did. I did. Heather, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. Um, I'm ready. Because uh, I know you know, one of the big things that, that, that you guys do uh, there at Gebbin is, is kind of doing media strategy and kind of putting together a, a program. Let's play pretend for the next 45 seconds. And let's say that I'm head of communications or marketing. I'm CMO of a new uh, consumer, uh, consumer product, uh, and I'm coming to you for advice. I've got a million dollars in marketing communications budget. So my question for you is, how would you allocate that? I mean, if you have kind of three or four pieces of the pie, one for uh, for social, one for kind of traditional advertising, one for for PR, how would you slice that up? And especially kind of with the social piece, organic and social, and then the follow up would be. How would that change if I had asked you the same question five years ago? So if you had asked me five years ago, I would say invest heavily in PR and then do, you know, kind of maintenance stuff on some of the other things. So dabble in it, but you don't have to really focus on it. And I think now it would be much more balanced. I think you still need to have the PR part. I think especially in consumer, if it's a consumer product, I think people underestimate the time needed to develop a really good, solid consumer PR campaign. It takes a lot longer sometimes than some of the B2B work that we do. So, um, 
you're still going to have to invest pretty heavily on the PR side, but I would balance that out. I wouldn't over-index on the PR part. And then I would do, you know, really creative experiential pieces. I don't think that was one of the categories you gave, but I'm going to insert it anyway. I think there's a lot of value. I like that. Um, I think there's a lot of value in experiential marketing. And if you can do it right, you can leverage it to generate media relations coverage and to create really good social content that you can use over a period of time. So I think you can get a lot of, um, um, bang for your buck from the experiential side. So I would add that into your matrix or your mix. And then certainly, you know, making sure you've got the paid piece set up and the organic part. What I would say on the organic part, there has to be an investment in the creative for the content. So five years ago, you could post a bunch of, you know, text-based content and it was fine. Now, if you do a bunch of text-based content and that's it, nobody's going to pay attention. So making sure that you're allocating enough of the budget for video or really good graphic design. Um, the other piece that I would say is thinking about how can you be outside the box? What's a new piece of technology that you could add to that? So we worked with clients last year. We created an Alexa skill for a client and we created a bot, like a, a bot within the Facebook Messenger for a client not things that you would typically think would come out of a PR agency per se, but both were for consumer oriented uh, products or entities um, and made a, made sense for what the client's goals and objectives were. So I, that's the other piece that I would say I would add experiential and I would add some kind of interesting technology play to what you're doing. The idea that you, you created an Alexa bot, I mean, I think just says something significant about about Gavin Communications and, and your experience. So my last question has to do with that. How the heck did you get here? You mentioned that you had worked um, you know, in Orlando, you'd worked for a PR agency, you've done some public affairs, public policy type of stuff. How did you get to this point right here where you're leading an organization that is doing so many different things that the typecast that is those two letters uh, would be uh, would be a great disservice. Yeah. Um, so I, I am a little geeky. I will admit to that. So you know, getting in on social media early on, um, I think was really really helpful. Certainly, um, I think having. At that time, so when I started the company, and Jay, well, you know, Jay, I'm sure remembers this. Everybody was a social media consultant then. So everybody who understood Facebook or Twitter would like hang their shingle outside and say, "I'm a social media consultant," and I was not. Yeah, exactly. I'm a social media guru. Even worse, um, I did not do that. So I was always really true to the PR part. Like I helped our clients or my clients at the time. It was you know just me. Um, it was all about PR and social media together. And I think being able to do that early on really created something that was a little bit different, and I think had more lasting power. So it wasn't just help us figure out Facebook and Twitter. It was, it was deeper than that. It was more, you know, we have a business problem to solve. How do we solve that? So I think that's one piece of it. I think the other part is this focus on innovation. So one of our house rules is innovate best practices. And that goes along that lines of like, we want to be technologists, not just PR people. So whether it's thinking about how do we create a bot or a skill and running with it and doing it for a client, we just launched a new insight service. So I think we're early on from a PR agency standpoint, thinking about insights and analytics and data visualization. Certainly that's something that a lot of other, you know, sectors have been focused on, but from a PR standpoint, PR people are sitting on so much data and they just don't know what to do with it. And so for us to have launched that as a standalone service, um, I think is something that has helped continue to differentiate us. So we're always looking at what are growth opportunities, what are problems our clients are trying to solve and how do we solve them, whether it fits in that PR box or if it requires us to incorporate a different type of technology or a different 
um, type of service that we want to continue to be innovating ourselves and who we are and what we're doing here as much as we want to then be able to help our clients innovate how they approach communication. One of the things I always find challenging with that, though, Heather, is making sure that customers know all the things that you can do, mm-hmm. right? So as you add capabilities into the into the shop, you know, your current clients or even the marketplace in general thinks of you as as really good at X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, yeah, but now we can do A, B, C, D, and E as well. I always find that, especially in an agency scenario, that's that's a challenge, right? To make sure that that the market understands the full breadth of your capabilities. Yep, we did our um, we did our very first client survey last year. So we we hired an outside company to survey our clients. What do they think about us? What are we doing well? What are rooms for opportunity growth growth areas for us? Where could we be improving? It was really really telling. Thankfully, our clients like us, which was good. But it was interesting through that survey that it validated what you were saying that the clients who were working with us from a PR standpoint, a lot of them didn't even know that we offered social services on the flip side. The ones that were doing their community management had no idea that we could also write bylines for them or drive media coverage for them. And so that's something over the past year we've been really intentional about. So when we're, we're working with new clients, working in making sure that there's that general capabilities overview, as we've launched this, this new insights service, one of our goals is in Q1 to do insights presentations specifically with 15 of our existing clients. So, you know, I think anytime you learn a new product or service, you're focused on how do we, you know, customer acquisition, how do we get the new customer? Sometimes it might be even easier just to focus on your existing customer base and how do you let them know that you have this offering, but that requires you to actually take the time to tell them. So instead of just assuming we're going out and setting up meetings with them and, and making sure that we don't forget to tell them what we're doing. Yeah, it's funny. And actually, even in the software business, you look at a company like Salesforce has the same problem, but but on the but on the software side as opposed to the services side, right? You know, Salesforce and Salesforce Marketing Cloud does a lot more than some individual customers may understand. And so Adam and his team are, have, a, have a similar challenge. It's kind of interesting like that. It's, good. It's, it's reassuring to know that no matter what size the company, it's still a similar problem. We want to ask you the two questions that we've asked every single one of our 300 plus guests on the Social Pros podcast. First question is, what one tip would you give somebody who's looking to become a social pro? So I would say be a technologist. So immerse yourself in technology and data and try new things and experiment and innovate on yourself. Um don't be afraid to test new things. Um, that's the only way you're really going to be able to differentiate yourself. I love it. Last question for Heather Whaling, founder of Gavin Communications in Columbus, Chicago, and all coast to coast, the middle coast, as we say here. If you could do a Skype call with any living person, who would it be and why? Oh, gosh. So I was thinking about this. I I think I would say... Shonda Rhimes. So my initial answer was going to be Michelle Obama, but I feel like that's a little obvious, but Shonda Rhimes is my next favorite. So Shonda Rhimes wrote a book called The Year of Yes that I think it was just really impactful for me. And I love the book. She is, for people who don't know, she's the person behind private practice, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. She just signed this huge deal with Netflix. Um, But I also love that she uses, I mean, so she is the most successful, powerful woman, you know, on television or behind television right now. Um, But she is also on the board of Planned Parenthood nationally. She, there was a really great article, I think in the Hollywood Reporter a couple weeks ago about how she leveraged her power to help the actress who plays Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy get $20 million. So she became like the highest paid actress. So what I love about Shonda Rhimes is not just that she's like brilliant and amazing, but that she's leveraging her power to empower other women. 
So I would love to talk to her. You're a big deal. You can make that happen. You know people. Oh my gosh, if somebody could figure out how to make that happen, that would be amazing. You could totally do that. Go put an intern on that. You could make that happen. If Shonda's listening, I'm Pierre on Twitter and she can feel free to tweet me. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Yeah, everybody at Pierre <laughs> Thank you so much for links to all of Heather's uh, social media profiles, not just PRTini on Twitter. Uh, links to Gebman Communications, great work there with New Insights product, full transcript of this episode, and 300 plus other hours of content from the world's best social media professionals. Go to socialpros.com. You'll find it all there. Heather, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Congrats on the on the office expansion too. I forgot to ask you about that. You guys are knocking down walls and getting bigger and all that. We are. Thank you so much. I want to see the hard hat photo. Yes, we'll work on that. <laughs> on behalf of Adam Brown and our friends at Salesforce Marketing Cloud, I am Jay Bear, founder of Convince and Convert. Delighted to have you join us. We will be back next week with another exciting episode of your favorite podcast. This is Social Pros. Thanks for listening to Social Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to socialpros.com for a complete show archive and for our greatest hits. Social Pros is sponsored by Convince & Convert, Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and by Yext. And it's produced by my team and I at Convince & Convert Media. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, visit us at convinceandconvert.com.